Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Well, if you're on Esther 6, we're going to look back a little bit, chapter 5, just to kind of get where we're at. If you're new with us, you haven't missed too much. You missed half of Esther. We're going to recap briefly. But in Esther 5, starting in verse 7, it says this. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, that the king and Haman come to the feast. Yep, where's the boo? Someone said it. Thank you. If you hear Haman, you can boo. That's okay. You won't distract me, I promise. You hear Mordecai or Esther, you do what? Cool. That was weak. Come on. There we go. If I found favor, grant my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Pastor Greg did a great job last week looking at that setting where Esther kind of walked into, hey, there we go, that was good, walked into the king and kind of took a big risk because the king, if you're not called to him, then he's going to have you killed, your head would be chopped off. It's not a, oh, there's, let's dialogue here. If he was in a bad mood... All he had to do was not raise his scepter, and Esther would have lost her head. didn't matter who you were. So Esther goes in, finds favor, has this feast, this banquet, and she requires the king and Haman to come and join. And she's wise and she's discerning because she plays it out longer. She's waiting for the right moment, and she doesn't say what her request is yet. But if you're Haman then you've got to be on cloud nine because all of a sudden the queen has requested your presence not once, but now twice. So you're in like, this is great. My fortunes are changing. I'm going up in the world. Then you read in verse nine, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad to hear. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So he is peeved. He is won this great time with the queen and the king. And as he's going, he sees the guy who is the bane of his existence, not in fear, not trembling, not worried, consistent. Not stoic, but just, I don't fear you. I know who I am, and you don't define who I am. And it enrages Haman to the point where he goes back, and he speaks to his wife and his friends, and they give him this counsel. Then his wife, Zeresh, in verse 14 of chapter 5, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, this is massive, cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully to the king's feast. And the idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So he receives his great advice. You're already mad at Mordecai. He's showing you up. So now you raise this gallows where everybody can see. And what are you doing? You're raising Mordecai up yet again if you kill him to a bigger stature than you. And you have to know the gallows wasn't just where they would be a noose and you would hang. That's, that's wild west, and that is potentially what happened. In these situations, it's a little more medieval, and it usually it was a stake driven with a point, 
and you would be impaled on this stake. So you would live kind of how Jesus was crucified on the cross. You could live for a couple of days impaled on a stake up high for everyone to see, don't do what he did or whoever he is. It's a very mean way to kill someone. And it's intentional of Haman to say, I'm going to take you out, Mordecai. And not only am I going to take you out, I'm going to humiliate you the whole point. Remember, in our story, Esther has no idea this is going to take place. Neither does Mordecai. They only know that Haman's after the Jews and the people group. He doesn't know, they don't know, is that he's after Mordecai himself to kill him. And that's kind of where it ended last week. And then you get into chapter 6. And the first point, if you're taking notes, is don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with a dot, dot, dot. And there's a reason for that. Because if you hold here and you jump into the New Testament to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaks and he writes this. Therefore, in chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For if the Gentiles seek all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble, meaning you have enough to worry about today than to constantly be thinking about tomorrow. Do you plan for tomorrow? Yes. You plan in pencil. You plan ahead. But you realize that once you start to plan, Proverbs 69 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God's going to pivot. God's going to change. And there's things that are outside of your and my control. Life happens. Relationships happen. There's things that are affecting you today that have nothing to do with your decisions but have to do with others' decisions that directly affect your life. Could be from generations ago. We looked at that and the whole point that Mordecai is actually, him and Esther are in the city where they really shouldn't be. The captives were freed and they could have went back to Jerusalem. They chose to stay. And Mordecai's descendants is King Saul, the first king of Israel, who was supposed to kill a certain king in the Old Testament, an Agite, who Haman is a direct descendant from. And because he didn't, generations later, all of a sudden you find yourself in a quandary between a rock and a hard place. And neither decision, the rock or the hard place, is of fun or easy. But one is the right decision. Both are not going to end pleasantly. They're not going to be the greatest. But they're intended to grow you. There's growth points in our lives where we go through things to learn and grow in our faith. And Mordecai knows who he is. And he, though he is mourning, he's in sackcloth and ashes, but he's standing at his post, but he's in mourning, but he's not fearful. He's not trembling when Haman walks by. Is he concerned? Sure. But he's not in despair and he's not limited by the fear or allowing fear to overpower him to not continue to where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. 
And for Haman, this is just, again, think of bully. What do they do? They're hurting, so they hurt people. And what does he do is he's looking at Mordecai, and I can't get him to feel how I'm feeling, so I'm going to take it out on him. But not just him, I'm going to go to his whole culture. Remember, Haman has no idea Esther's ethnicity. No clue. We do. We've been privy to that information. He has no idea. Mordecai's finally told her to go. She has done that. And so, as Haman prepares this gallows, as he's preparing to go to supper again with Esther, he goes home, and his wife gives him this advice, and then it goes to the palace, and the story switches gears to what is this king about? And my remember, King Xerxes, he's just going, he is being used and pawned. He thinks people have his best in mind. He's assuming, which there's a whole phrase with assuming, that people have his best. They don't. They have their own agendas, and they don't want to give him the right counsel or anything. So on chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On that night, the king could not sleep. Imagine that. Coincidence? No. With God, there's no such thing as coincidence. The king, on this night, could not sleep. Was it because he was entertained by Queen Esther? Maybe. Was his mind thought with, what is she going to ask? Has she so delicately at the feast and wooed him that he is constantly thinking about her? Remember, he's got 399 that we know of other concubines, other women that could occupy his time. He's got servants. He's got food. He can do whatever, and he can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Okay, I love history. Most people don't like history because they say it's boring. It's rote. So if you think of the in high school and college, elementary school, we always have our favorite teacher, Right? So think of your least favorite teacher that you've ever had and imagine them just droning on and on and on. For me, it was math or geometry and going on and on. And it's counting. I know, Jill, you like math. I do not. I'm a history nut. But he gets the most boring book possible, the most rote textbook that is just standard facts to read to him, kind of like counting sheep at night, to go to sleep. He just wants to go to sleep. So he brings a random servant to go get a random chronicle book, which has all of the facts, all of the history, all of the nitty-gritty, which we say in history. When I teach history, I don't go by specific dates. I usually do a section of dates because there's so many things that go on in the spread of 10 years, 20 years. This book has like every day. So on this day, this happened. On this day, this, this sheep had this birth. And oh, we had this many sheep. And oh, we had this council. And oh, we had this. It's boring. And the intent is to bore the king. The intent is for him to get to sleep. So this random servant grabs this random book of deeds that there is multiple volumes because you have this kingdom that has existed for some time. And it was found, just so happened in this particular book of Chronicles, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherah or Xerxes. So all of a sudden it comes up that it's a reminder from what we've seen in chapter 2 where Mordecai brings to the king this news where he wasn't rewarded. And in the culture of the Persian Empire, the king, it was when everybody did something like this, you rewarded them with money, with all types of things, so that more people would be encouraged to do what Mordecai has done. And so he's curious if it's wrote facts, if this person did this, they got this. If this person helped the king here, he got 30 talents of silver. And so 
The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done. That's an issue. Because instead of something glorious happening for Mordecai, nothing. And if someone sees this and sees, well, if that's what bestows upon someone who is a favor for the king, then I want nothing to do with this. And since there was nothing that was happened, the king, his wheels, began to spin. And you see this. There's been precedent for others. The king wants to encourage this. So he goes further. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered. That was bad. Come on. There we go. And the king said, who was in the court? Haman had entered the outer court in the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Coincidence again? I think not. It's that concept. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, Philippians 4 says this, but with everything, with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. There's three things that Paul says in the New Testament. Prayer, going to God, with supplication, so you bring your petitions, with thanksgiving, with joy. Bring your request. What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? What are you fearful about? What are you sad about? What are you angry about? Bring it before the Lord. Bring it to God. God says, look, Jesus was very specific. Keep knocking. You're not going to bother me. Think of a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's constantly knocking at the door, knock, 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 or constantly is my daughter, Taylor, almost four years old. Well, why? 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 And it's like, I have answered you three different ways. I'm done. And that's what I usually say. I've already answered you, Taylor, and I keep going. God wants us to be like that, that incessant ask. Why? Because he can handle it, and he wants to hear from us. And Philippians, the promises in chapter 4, verse 7 through 9 says, don't Worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known. And then the promise after that is not, I'm going to solve your problem. I'm going to make you not angry. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to, no. The promise is that after you do that, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. What has God given you? A mind to know, a heart. He's also given you the Holy Spirit if you know him. And that Holy Spirit is one of power and authority and of sound mind. So that you have the ability to, if you're angry, if you're upset, if you're tired, if you're weary, you will have peace to then know what to do. He says, I'm not going to solve your problem. I'm going to be with you in the problem. I'm going to give you wisdom and countenance. I'm going to give you peace to be able to work through whatever it is, however long it takes, with you. And you get to hear, and Mordecai is not anxious. The king just so happens to not be able to fall asleep. He happens to read a specific volume, a tomb, basically, of random facts about the kingdom. It just so happens to be about Mordecai. It just so happens to say that Mordecai has not been rewarded. It just so happens the king is like, if I don't reward him, then other people won't report what he did. Therefore, I need to do something. And it just so happens that at the crack of dawn, Haman, who wants to kill Mordecai, who has had a gallows built, just the night before, to go to the king to ask for his, to kill him, just so happens to be walking through your prime minister, and he says, who's outside? Oh, Haman's outside. Bring him in. And you can start to see, remember, in Esther, it's satire in some ways. This is, so if you're a fan of satire, this is the book for you in the, in the scripture. Because he's looking at the comic side of it, of this king who is so great, who is over 127 provinces, can't go to sleep, 
This king who had the most beautiful wife kicked her and abandoned her and then wishes her, this great king. And it just so happens, coincidentally, that the guy who's trying to kill the Jews, who's trying to kill Mordecai, just so happens to show up. How rich, how ironic. You notice the author kind of leaves it hanging there. The plot begins to thicken because of no honor was given to Mordecai. And you see this. Who is in the courtyard? And the king's young men told him, Haman, the king said, let him come. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, and we're going to pause there. you got to think three characters. You have the king, and you know what's going on in his head. You have Haman, you know what's going on in his head. And you have Mordecai in this background who has no idea that the king can't sleep and that there's been a banquet. He has no idea that Haman's trying to kill him. And all of a sudden, these two, Haman and the king, get together. And if it was that easy for Haman to get the signet ring off the king, to sign a decree, to say, I'm going to take care of these rebels, who he never told the king their ethnicity or the group. He just said, you have a people, and that was it. And so one commentator writes this on this section. He says, on that night, that very night, the king could not sleep. God was at work for the good of Mordecai in ways beyond understanding. The malice of Haman and the vicarious amoral hedonism of Asherus presented no barrier to the lordship of the God of heaven. Have you perhaps forgotten that the word of Christ, which says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Do you live in the grip of worry about forces beyond your control? Our fear is an excellent barometer of how far we continue to misunderstand the true dynamics that govern all things. Our worry derives from the belief that we ought to be competent. Hear this, because this is us in the West. This is me at times. This is probably you at times. Our worry derives from the belief that we ought to be competent we ought to be able to. We ought to have the gifts and abilities. We ought to be competent for every circumstance, everything, while we discover that, in fact, we are not. And maybe you have been living out this equation over and over. Unforeseeable circumstances plus misplaced faith in your own competence has equaled anxiety and fear. But the word of the Lord in Esther 6 calls us to direct our confidence to far more reliable object than ourselves. It invites us to lift our eyes to the hills and to remember from where our help comes. Our safety comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It aims to help us rejoin the psalmist in singing with renewed confidence in the only solid foundation for faith. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We may believe in the gospel and trust in Christ crucified, but we give the lie to that profession when we give into the fear about our future. The God who acted by his son to save us while we were yet sinners acts in countless ways beyond our ability to understand, to guard us, to keep us, to bring us home to glory, remade in the image of his son. There's all the background noise, and we are privy to the story because we are looking and reading after it's already happened. If you put yourself in Esther's shoes, you've got to be a little quivering What's tomorrow going to hold? You have no idea this is even happening. If you're Mordecai, you're in sackcloth and ashes, more than likely praying, though it doesn't say it, because of what's about to take place. Modeling yet again, but he's confident. He still goes about and does what he is called to do. He doesn't let that paralyze him. So for us, we don't want to be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, we make a request known. You will still struggle for the record. You will still have fear at times. You will still be anxious at times. 
It's going back to that verse, and you can write it in your column and right here in your Bible. I always say highlight, circle, underline, but you can write it anywhere in your Bible or on your notes, Philippians 7, 4, verses 7 through 9. That when you are in fear, when you are anxious, when you are angry, when you are whatever, go there, read it, and then go to the Lord and remember and pray it back to him. God, I'm anxious about, name it. I'm fearful about, name it. I'm angry at this person, name them. And you promise that if I bring this before you, you will give me peace. And so I am bringing this before you and asking for your peace so that I know what to do. And he promises that peace. It may not be right then, but it's constantly praying. It's bringing it before him. And the more you pray, the more you find you're, they don't maybe change these people. You do. And the way you view it and the way you look. And then we see God's sense of humor and his provision that we are privy to that no one else is. Because remember, satire. We're mock, the guy, the author of this book, is looking and saying, do you see God's hand in all this? This great king, this great advisor, has all authority and all power, do they really? So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? You got to just laugh at the guy. You're privy to the reality that what has been read is Mordecai. Nothing's been honored. Here comes Haman, the enemy of the Jews who hates Mordecai, who's trying to get him killed and get his signet ring. And, and had this not taken place, I'm sure the king would have said, yeah, go for it. Have at it. And he's going in thinking, well, who would the king like more than me? I am loved by the king. I am this great man. And you've got to be thinking, my luck, are you kidding me? When luck is good, man, this must, this is, my luck is just awesome right now. We all play games, right? We all play different stuff. And, and sports and different games are, I think, a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill. There's a little bit of that all involved. And so my guilty pleasure sometimes, I'll play Angry Birds. So anybody else play Angry Birds? No, you liars. Oh, there's one. Okay. <laughs> Tetris, anything like that? Okay. Sometimes when I play, I'm like, it's pure luck. It's a video game. So it's on your phone and I just need to buy some time or whatever. And half the time I go on and I'll flick the birds and you break down the pigs, all that. So you can go look it up. It's great. But I think half of it is luck because it's a computer-generated game. So there's a code out there. And I'm like, some days I can knock all the piggies down and I keep advancing. It's great. And other days I'm like, I can't. I just keep losing. Right? We've had those moments. You're, you're golfing, right? I'm, I'm not an avid golfer, but I'll golf. And what keeps me going back is that I will have one shot on 18 holes, and I'm like, dude, I'm a pro. Did you see that shot? <laughs> and I'll go back and waste my money again and walk for two hours, and it's, again, it's, there's a little luck. And if you're Haman, man, the king gave you a signet ring. You're going to take out these people who are just a thorn in your side. You've been asked to a banquet with the queen, and then she asks you back for a second time. Wow, I'm going to get Mordecai taken out. I am just... On cloud nine, the kings just asked me, who, won, who would, how would I honor? Well, let me tell you how you should honor me, king. That's what's going through his head. All the luck. This is great. I am rolling. This is awesome. So Haman explains. For the man whom the king desires to, likes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. So this is the robes the king puts on that no one else touches. And let, let it be put on this man who you wish to honor. So he goes further than that. Let the royal robe which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and whose head a royal crown is set. 
He's basically putting himself on par with the king is what he's trying to do. Let me wear the royal robe. Let me wear the, the crown jewel, this horse that only the king rides, this stallion through the streets. And sometimes they would put a crown on the horse's head. So let me wear that crown on the horse's head. Let me put on this robe. Let me see and let the people see. For the men whom the king delights to honor, whom would the king delight to honor? And he says this. And whose horse the king has ridden and whose royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, the king's most noble officials. So pick whoever's below Haman is what he's pretty much saying. So there's always, it's politicking. You're always poking, trying to get ahead. So there is someone who's right below Haman who he's saying, okay, let that somebody, that person, go before and hold the reins of this horse that the royal robes are brought in and the horse that the, he has ridden on. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on horse to the square of the city, proclaiming, meaning shouting, yelling, screaming, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So let's summarize. What does he want to do? He wants to put a royal garment on the person that the king has worn. Put this person on the king's horse. Oh, and put the royal diadem, like a crown, on his head and parade him through the streets and shout that this person is pretty much on equal footing with the king. And look what the king does to those whom he wishes to honor who help the king out. And you start to see God's sense of humor and his provision in the very next verse because I firmly believe that God has a sense of humor. You have to laugh. And the point of Esther is to make you laugh at times, to say, how ridiculous and then you see the twist. It's kind of like a good comedian who has that kind of, the punchline comes in. There's comedians that are really dull and they don't laugh. And you have to explain the joke I've been told and it's not funny. And since I have no good jokes, I won't say any jokes. There's humor though. And God will do this in our own lives. And sometimes you just have to step back and just laugh and quit taking it so seriously. Sometimes you just need to laugh at yourself or laugh at the situation and say, I, psh, it is what it is. And I, God, you guys got to help me through this. I couldn't predict this. I couldn't. You just have to laugh. And if you're Haman, you've got to have, you picture him. Here's the king asking this question. How would the king like to honor the man that he wishes to honor? Here's Haman. Who would the king like to honor more than me? And he's saying this with just a grin on his face, smirking the whole time, thinking, this is going to be me. This is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. My ego, my pride is going to be through the roof and everyone's going to see me. Verse 10, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse. This is a great idea, Haman. I love it. As you have said, do so to Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> Could you just imagine if you were sitting there as a fly on the wall to see Haman's jaw drop to say, oh, this is great. The king's going to do it to Mordecai. Did I hear right? Is this really? Uh, wait, wait. They're saying Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. So the king knows his name. He knows his ethnicity. He's a Jew. And he knows what he's done. He says, go do this. Just like you said, hurry, take the robes, do this. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. If you're Haman, your world has just spun and your luck has just run out and your angry bird streak has gone down the toilet. <laughs> and you're at a loss. And now you've got to eat crow and humble pie because you've just told the king who can take your head off and on a whim. Again, he's lived in the life of luxury. His dad was the king before him, meaning more than likely he has no idea what life is like outside the palace. He only knows 
the wine, the food, the, anything he wants, he gets. And now he's told Haman, oh, go do this. And Haman probably knows if I don't do this, he can take my head off and I better go do this. And you see God's sense of humor and his provision. And it's another text that I would say, if you write right there in the margin of verse 10, write Psalm 73. It's another psalm, another point of reference for you to go to that when you just need to laugh or when someone's driving you up a wall and they're just a bear to you, whether they're angry at them or whatever it is, and you know you've done nothing wrong, you've been in the right, and you see the world around you, you see maybe your, your work environment, whatever, and you feel like the bad guys are always winning and the wrong people are always in power and the wrong people are always, go to Psalm 73, just put your finger in, in Esther 6 and jump over there Psalms is to the right. It's about halfway through. There's 150 Psalms. It's right about the halfway point. Psalm 73, I'm going to read this real fast. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he writes kind of his personal, which we, we all get here for the record. And if you haven't been, you will get here more than likely at times. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And saying, in a sense, I, I see that God is faithful, but I almost went off the path. I almost left the faith. I almost walked away. For I was, and he says, why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he reads down to this verse and he explains what he saw. For they have no pangs until death, meaning they don't fear anything. They don't have any bad stuff till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Wealthy, back in the day, people, was fat and happy, okay? Because you, were, you didn't have grocery stores, you would eat and you would get big and large. And in fact, women back in the day, Esther, for six months, you know what they did, right? They pumped her full of food to plump her out. That was a sign. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken in life like the rest. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. Notice how he's saying they, them, their. Their eyes swell through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, they, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in rich. All, I, all in vain have I, and this is his woe is me statement. We've been here. Woe is me. All in vain I have kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I, I just got tired of seeing the wrong people win. I got tired of seeing these people who I see not following Jesus, getting everything that I feel like I deserve. And then he says, it seemed to me a wearisome task to continue on in really the faith, continue on doing the right thing until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned the end until he went back to his faith and remembered what we sung about, faithful you are, faithful always. And he had to go back to remember he's comparing himself to all these people, to all this stuff, and forgetting, where is this hope found? Where is faithfulness found? Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, the psalmist writes. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away like a dream. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish, I was ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. We go through moments. You will go through moments if you're maybe in a moment like this where you're just frustrated with God, you're angry, you're upset for something, whatever it is. Nevertheless, the psalmist writes what is truth because though we feel a certain way doesn't mean that it is true. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of your wondrous works. You see, God sees everything, and that's the whole point of Esther. He sees all of this. And God's hand is very much in the insignificant as we deem insignificant. What's your legacy, New Hope? If you have kids, it's your kids. Long term, my parents always said, what was success in the Dunn household? My dad's a pastor, so he was in a church, large church, small church, church planting. They said success for them wasn't about the big church, wasn't about preaching or speaking tours or doing books. My dad hasn't written a book. He hasn't gone on speaking tours at all. They said the, the mark of success to them is that all five of us wouldn't hate the church when they were done with ministry, that they would have a relationship with all five of us when we all left the house and that we would follow after Christ. And all five of us are at different paths, but we're all involved in church. We're all following after Jesus. And we all have a relationship with my family, which we just came back from. So we like to be around each other for spurts. <laughs> They're still family. But that's, it can seem insignificant. You didn't have a big church. My dad wasn't pastor. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. And we can think that it doesn't matter, but God's hand is always in the insignificant. And you read verse 12. Then Mordecai, after this is done, because Haman says, I've got to do what the king has said. Therefore, he does it. He puts the robe on, he eats his crow, and he goes out in verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He doesn't flaunt it. He could have rubbed salt. You know, you ever want to do that, right? When someone's been picking or getting at you and you finally get it, you're like, ha. And Mordecai doesn't do that. He goes back to his post and he humbles himself and he just takes up right where he left off. Mordecai returned, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So it's flipped all of a sudden. So Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes, been changed out of that to parade through the street, probably puts it back on. But now Haman himself has put on sackcloth and ashes. He is mourning. What that verse tells you, if you highlight and circle that verse, Haman has shifted from this, look at me, cloud nine experience. I am on the best luck streak ever to, I'm doomed. And he is, woe is me at this moment, and he's mourning, and he's running home with his head covered, and Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Now they give him some good counsel. Not good counsel, but they give him the facts. And Haman told all that happened. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but, he will but you will surely fall before him. Even the counselors, his wife, who's not been the best wife by encouragement, has said, you're going to fall. It's just a matter of time now. And right after this, and while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived, 
and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Oh, the story gets deeper. And you've got to be thinking, oh, I don't want to go, right? If you've gone through something hard or traumatic, whatever, it's like, I don't, the last thing you want to do is go. The eunuchs come. And right when they said, you're going to fall, the eunuchs show up, and it's like, oh, the, the story is flipping. The story is changing. What's going to happen next? Don't read it. Wait. And read with us next week on chapter 6. Stay in chapter 6 this week. Read through this and look at how God's provision is in your life. And many times it's the big picture. We tend to focus on one thing. I'm going to read something to close out. But we tend to focus our lives on one instance. Instead, you sometimes have to look back at the bigger picture and to recognize what is God doing. Even moving here for my family, this is year two for us here. So we're still brand new to the area in a lot of ways. We can look back. And we never had any doubts as where God's calling us, but we can see bits and pieces of, oh, that was God's hand. Oh, that was God's hand. Oh, and it's not always those big miraculous things. It's a little things. It's someone showing up with a meal. It's, it's, some, it's a neighbor that's popped out of the woodwork who at Halloween we meet, he brings me to, lunch, to breakfast one day. And Alicia's like, well, you want to spend the brand like with a neighbor? He could be like, you know, anybody. I'm like, I know, it could be an axe murderer. I'm getting a car with him. But he's turned into some great family friends who have been like, we call them surrogate grandparents for our kids because their grandparents are in Cortland, New York, and Pittsburgh. And it's been just these little things that if your eyes are open to see God moves through and God shows up in many ways. So I want to close with this statement and then we'll sing as we leave. If the book of Esther shows us anything, it shows us that God manages the affairs of men even without their knowledge. God knows that he is what he is doing, and in the courts of heaven, there is no coincidence or surprises. Esther wasn't lucky to be queen. Mordecai wasn't lucky to have heard of the assassination plot. It wasn't luck or chance that made Haman enter the royal courts at this time with his, with his heart. All of these events were orchestrated by God, not by luck. This becomes difficult, of course, when bad things happen to us. It is easy to see God's management of all things when we see the good that happens. But what about the bad? Even then, we must trust God's total plan, realizing that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. We understand that Paul, who wrote Romans, says all things work together. Any one event taken in isolation may seem to make no sense, but when we see all things working together, we then see the ultimate wisdom of God's plan. Take new hope. We're 28 years young, working on year 29 of existence. I'm 35, not 36 yet. I'm older than the church, which is weird and strange to me. And yet you think about those years of existence, and some of you have been here since the founding, some of you have come in at different points, and yet God's happenstance just so happened to take us, we were pretty much a church plant hopping around, never at a location until we just coincidentally ended up here, coincidentally ended up here right before COVID. Coincidentally, things, they don't just happen. God is orchestrating. God is moving, both in the church, but also your life, the role you play. And you take a step back sometimes in those moments of, I don't understand. Sometimes you just need to laugh and then take a step back. Go to Philippians 4, 7 through 9, pray it out, and start looking and have your eyes open to see what has God been doing? And just start writing them down. And sometimes 
you're praying and wanting God to move this direction. He says, yeah, I see you, I hear you, and I'm going to answer your prayer, but I'm going to answer it this way. I don't know how many times God has done that in my own life where he, I've said, all right, God, I need this taken care of, and I want your wisdom in this. And I'm like, oh, this is how he's going to solve it, and it's not how he solves it. He solves it this way. But when you pray and when you seek him, and you're ready and willing for him to move in some different ways, and it has to be this way, no, it doesn't. That's why we want to be generous with our stuff, with our time, with our talents, because when we're generous, we don't hold it with a closed fist, our things and our stuff. We hold it with an open hand, knowing God's faithful. I'll have everything I need. And I'm going to go through periods where I'm not going to have a lot, but I know how to survive. I'm going to go through periods where I have a lot, but I'm not going to put my trust there because he's there. And so this week where you find yourself, now he's orchestrating your circumstances. Good, bad, he is there in the midst of it. And he says, you can knock, you can cry out, and you're not bothering me. Even if this is the 50th, 100th, 1,000th time that you brought whatever it is before him, he can take it. Test him. He asks you to do it. And trust him, as Mordecai does. Keep taking that next right step. Even if it's a rock and a hard place, you do the next best right thing. Even if you know this is going to end bad, this is going to, but I know this is right, do the right thing. Because faithfulness isn't glamorous. Faithfulness over the long haul produces the righteousness. It produces the fullness of life. It produces the freedom and the peace that you see in mature Christians. And even though I am 35 and think, oh, I've got all this wisdom. No, I'm still learning. I am still growing. And I will always be growing and learning. And the mature Christians you see didn't get there overnight. And they are still learning. And they are still growing. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here in your name to know, Jesus, that you are with us every step of the way, that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, that you see all things ahead of time, that you have a plan before us, Jesus, and you know what we're going to walk through and what we're going to need. And so would we trust you in our lives in those areas, Lord, where we have a little less trust, where we have a little more fear, that you, God, would just present your, your will to us and present your comfort to us to allow us a peace that surpasses all understanding you would guard our hearts and minds with that so that we would know what is the right decision in the situations that we find ourselves in. And this week, Lord, if we've been struggling or wrestling with things, may we take a pause and reflect back on where you have brought us to and why are we at this point and what, have, what do we need to do to maybe right the ship? And for those of us, Lord, who have, our luck's been great, we've been going really well and we're like, what's coming around the corner? Lord, will we take a moment to thank you for that? Whatever that is, whether it's a good job, whether it's a good family, whether it's just been a good week or a good weekend, would we pause and reflect to know that you are in control, that you are working behind the scenes in ways that we can never imagine or think, and yet let us walk with confidence in you, Jesus. Now, when you hear us and you see us, we ask this in Jesus' name.